episode 14 of Building Blocks with Brendan. Today we have a very special guest. Mark Overs is screenable, so now he's developed a way for you to have your cake and eat it too. But today we're not talking about cake. We're talking about a way where you can drink your beer and eat it too through upcycled grain from the beer making process. And that really what sustainable is. They're taking the waste of the beer making process, which amounts to about 2% of the world's waste, and developing a way to make that nutritious waste, which at the end of the day is just a grain, which is high in fiber, protein, minerals, everything you need in your body to live a healthy life, and taking that and turning it into delicious baked goods. What's really interesting about this story and this whole podcast and sustainable is really the idea of upcycling. Prior to this conversation and meeting Mark, I really didn't know what upcycling was or that it could even make that big of a difference. How can one person's waste turn into someone else's treasure? Well, this is exactly what upcycling is and what we really discussed during this podcast and this discussion. How he can turn this waste that is abundant, especially in Vancouver, where around every single corner, if you've ever visited Vancouver, there's neither microbrewery or another restaurant that makes their beer in-house. How all that waste, which especially in the city, can't go to farms because it's too hard to transport, he can churn through sustainable. Mark can churn that into delicious baked goods that not only taste good, they're healthier for you because they're high in protein and minerals, but most importantly, can remove waste from the ecosystem. We really learned through his podcast about Mark's story, how he initially was a you know semi-pro athlete, possibly going overseas to play soccer, you know, decided to go to school instead, but Throughout his whole journey, has always had that competitive nature to him. When he went to UBC, and that's where I met him, he partnered up with a few other individuals in a school project who came from the beer industry. What they learned was that, as we all learned through this podcast, is that the beer industry has a lot of waste, especially with all the grain, through the fermentation process. And Mark, having some background in nutrition, working with individuals who needed to have fiber in their diet, but always ended up eating cookies... This is where those, you know, that spark an idea and the knowledge from someone else, similar to how DNA was created, you know, sparked together and came up with the idea of sustainable, taking this upcycled grain and developing tasty baked goods. And just like everyone else during COVID, Mark and Sustainable were no different. They were hit quite hard, but just in great entrepreneurial fashion. With some small pivots, they're actually able to develop a really unique product, and that is the ability to make prepackaged goods so you can bake the cookies, waffles, pancakes at home. And right now, in fact, if you check out their website, which I'll link below, you can join their Kickstarter right now and try these goods for yourself. I've had the luxury of trying sustainable cookies and banana bread multiple times throughout my MBA career. And not only are they tasty, you feel good knowing you're getting a little bit of extra fiber in your diet. So hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. Learn how Mark, coming from a diverse background with no professional baking experience has developed a soon to be bakery empire on an idea of making the world a better place one baked good at a time and please like this video on youtube subscribe and write a review on apple podcasts hopefully you guys enjoy this episode and learn how everyone can be an entrepreneur when you just have a great idea and a strong work ethic thanks so much you know for joining me on this podcast we've met multiple times through UBC. Uh, you're probably one of the most, at least in my year, the f- most famous, one of the most famous startups throughout the, the MBA program. Um, also because you you sold a very tasty, good treat that everyone liked to enjoy as well, which are always helps. So I guess let's start off, in, you know, introduce yourself, 
And what is Sustainable? Like, how would you define the organization currently? Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Brendan. Uh, my name is Mark Wandler. I'm the CEO of Sustainable. And the quick three-second spiel I always give is we turn beer waste into tasty baked goods. Um, but our story has definitely evolved over time. So it's been really funny to listen to people being like, oh, you should not use the word waste. But it is kind of fighting food waste has become really popular. So it mm -hmm. actually has worked to our benefit. The first reaction people give is usually a gross, like they cringe their body mm -hmm. language. But as soon as they taste the product, they're they're won over really fast. They're like, this is mm -hmm. amazing. How do you do this? And I think the biggest reason for starting the business is one, mm -hmm. I got introduced to the problem as part of the MBA. One of my MBA mm -hmm. colleagues came from the beer industry and just recognized the size of the problem and how it was growing. Um, craft breweries, I think we all mm -hmm. know, have grown nationwide. Everybody loves a good brew. And on the other side, we're throwing away all the protein, fiber, and minerals. So only the sugar goes into the beer. So mm -hmm. I come from a healthcare background. I've been, I taught diabetics for like four or five years. And I was mm -hmm. like, you need to eat more fiber and eat less sugar. And the fiber component's not taught out enough. So this was just like an interesting timing. Um, I always say I accidentally ended up into this because that wasn't mm -hmm. the plan when I entered the MBA, I was going to go corporate. Um, <laughs> but I couldn't turn down this opportunity and it's been a fun ride ever since. Yeah. And and that's such a funny thing. Like, I especially, especially at UBC and a lot of Vancouver, especially a lot of people talk to Vancouver. It's always interesting compared to the rest of Canada when it comes to like entrepreneurship. It always seems like it's much more cause driven, but also a lot of times more unique around sustainability, uh, upcycling, which is obviously very big. How so for your colleagues in the beer industry, beer is very hip, very cool, very Vancouver thing as well, especially with Seattle right there. Where was this? idea already around and you're like hey let's do cookies with this do flour with it or how did you come to realization that hey we can take this waste and make it into something that can really be used for more than just what was the current use were just thrown away i'm assuming or what did they have a use for it currently yeah so there's there's a couple different questions in there mm -hmm. um so the biggest disruption in the beer industry has been craft beer in the last kind of five to 10 years mm -hmm. has taken off and craft breweries are located in urban centers as opposed to like the larger breweries will mm -hmm. operate on the fringe. And so any breweries that are on the fringe, typically their byproduct can go to like animal feed and stuff like that because they're co-located close to farm mm -hmm. animals. But farmers don't want to come in like you've, you've lived in Vancouver for a bit. Mm -hmm. Farmer getting into the city coming and grabbing that spanker and getting back out. Like that's a journey. They're stuck in traffic. They don't want to mm -hmm. do that. Um, so oftentimes it does just get wasted. Mm -hmm. And we aren't the first people to do this. There's a lot of people who've kind of trialed it, um, but it's not an easy thing to do. And I think mm -hmm. that's what's kept a lot of people out from trying to scale it is that they've tested it out. They sampled it out. You didn't it's, it's, you didn't get success the first few times. And I can honestly say the first time we baked something with it, it wasn't super great. Mm -hmm. um, but we just knew there was something there. Like people wanted to like it when they sampled mm -hmm. it. They were just like, I, I really want to like this. And so like, we're like, okay, well, we just got to make it taste good. And then eventually we did. Yeah. And what's really funny about that story. So like you, you said, you came from a healthcare background. You weren't, I'm assuming you weren't a baker or never really had any much culinary experience. As someone who, you know, typically you enter an MBA or you go to more schooling to like really focus on a dream or grow on what you're already 
good out of house experience and now do you so how did you actually start baking the cookies like or how did you start with that was it a part of a project did you want to try it out did you want to experiment like how did it initially start yeah so the first thing we did as part of like so this came actually out of a class it was a tech entrepreneurship class it was a four-month class and we had to define a problem we actually looked at what could you do with spent grain and so the three use cases we looked at was one as an energy source um which you would need a ton of it and you're not producing it economically compared to the other resources out there. So that one dropped off really fast. Mm -hmm. Then we actually looked at using mushrooms and mycelium to make like coasters and products like that, um, which had some potential, but there was a lot of people already doing it and a lot Mm -hmm. of patents to work around. And then there was using it as a food source, which is what it was grown for initially. Um, And so that's what we decided to go after. And then when it comes to like, this is where you play smart. I'm not a baker. I actually really love mm-hmm. to cook, but I hate to bake. Mm-hmm. And this is where I just brought in other colleagues. Like people, you say you're turning beer waste into tasty bake hits and people are like, okay, I'm curious, like immediately. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't hard to recruit people in. And then we, uh, that was our very first hire when we turned this project mm-hmm. project into a business was a French trained baker. Ooh, and so... I've done many school projects that don't turn into anything or like have some promise, but then, you know, people you worked on the project with, it kind of just falls apart because everyone's trying to get new jobs or trying to do other things. What, why, or how did it transition from a project to, Oh heck, we could probably do a business with this. Was this, was it right away? Was it something you mauled over for a bit or kind of, what was that? I guess flipping the switch to saying, okay, let's take this a little bit farther than just for academia. Yeah. So I guess for me, it was coming out of the NBA. When I, when I knew I was taking on the NBA, I knew coming out of it, it would be a little bit harder. And that's because just prior to the NBA, like I decided to take a break and I actually became a flight attendant and traveled for like three or four years. So that's what people recognize me as. It's like, they look at your experience. And even though I did operations before that, they look at your most recent and you're like, oh, you're a flight attendant. So the job opportunities that were I was exposed to weren't super compelling to me. Mm-hmm. And um, another class I took about like it all revolved around the circular economy mm-hmm. and it just like consumed me. Like this push to a circular economy mm-hmm. consumed me. I had a lot of savings because I'd been really smart with my money prior to the NBA. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? Let's give ourselves a year. It took Clinton, Angela and myself mm-hmm. were just like, let's give it a year. Let's see where we get in like eight months and Ange still worked, but Clinton had a sabbatical mm-hmm. um, that he took. And so mm-hmm. after a year, we, we had brought on some advisors and they're just like, no, you're like steps away from raising money and doing something with this. You can't go mm-hmm. get a job. We, we were getting thrown job offers too. Like I have, yeah. I've now turned down a six figure salary job while yeah. doing this. So for me, the risk of not doing, like I will regret not doing this. And I feel like, other $100,000 jobs are going to come along. Um, mm-hmm. And the more experience I get, the more potential that has. But this has never mm-hmm. been about the money. This is about like really mm-hmm. defining something new. The circular economy is hot. Uh, mm-hmm. I hate waste in general. Like mm-hmm. I hate wasted time. I hate wasted resources. Mm-hmm. So wasted food is right up my alley of a problem to tackle and mm-hmm. just keep going. And I like how, like how you said, you, I mean, you, you said a timeline for yourself and you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to commit to it for X amount and see what happens. Um, 
Now, did you have any entrepreneurship background? Did you start projects before? Was this something you were familiar with or was it very much a, you know what, like the jobs I'm looking for, I can't get, let me just put all my effort into something. Like, was this common for you to do or was this a brand new experience in and out of itself? Um, So this is a brand new experience. And I can say like the one thing, so when I went at 17, I had the decision to make um, because I could have gone to try and play pro soccer in Europe because I had a couple opportunities there. Ooh. But I also had some scholarships to university. Um, and so my parents really pushed me to do the university thing. Mm-hmm. Soccer was truly like my first passion. Mm-hmm. And so when it came time again, like at this MBA, that was that's probably the one decision that I regret not having tried to go to Europe and play soccer. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of this, I almost felt like the same gut feeling. Like if I don't try this, is this going to be another moment in my life that I'm going to have this regret? Mm-hmm. Um, so this time I decided to just try. That, that's so interesting. I always find what's always interesting is a lot of people, whether they have startup background, sports always seems to be consistent. Like having that competitive nature or that drive to excel always seems to be quite common uh, amongst a lot of people that start businesses. I guess it's like anything else. It is a competition at the end of the day, but I've asked you a lot of family, funny enough, very familiar stories with like, family friends where you know growing up you know then being immigrants here they were their parents were like look like they were going to play some professional soccer and the family was like that is not a job you want a factory job it's safe you know it's conservative that's what you want to do don't go play soccer and it's, it, was, it was a funny thing where it, they were like you know what like if i took the year and failed i would be a year behind but realistically you're working for so many years it's not as big of a risk as it seems compared to looking back on it and saying you know what if what could happen? And a lot of times, like you were touching on, a lot of these experiences people tend to take, you tend to learn something through. It's not like a year you disappeared and then you came back and you're like, oh, I've learned nothing. I just wasted it. It's mostly like, okay, I've had some experiences, maybe not as good as getting a consulting job or a different job here on a resume, but you have to become your own person at the end of the day, no matter what. So you start, you know, you're like, okay, I have some time to commit. I'm going to build this, build the product, build the business. And like you said before, it's, Anything in regards to baking or making food, taste is such a big thing. And like you said, it is not the easiest thing to get things tasting amazing while keeping them healthy. I remember you saying that as well is one of the challenges is anything can taste good, except you just can't look at the calories, but the, trying to have it relatively healthy and not have, you know, two grams of fi- like one gram of fiber is an issue. So how did you in developing the product, like how conscious were you of okay, what ingredients were using to make it taste good, but also being realizing that at, to some level health and taste can sometimes be hard to match together. How were you able to kind of navigate that field? Yeah. So that's one, there's going to be like a consumer education piece. Um, mm-hmm. And two, it's just like leveraging my background and, mm-hmm. and that side of things. So one of the biggest things like misconceptions is that sugar is like a bad thing and mm-hmm. it's, it's not a bad thing. It's you need to find the right balance. And so that's what I constantly teach out. And that's what actually dietitians are trying to get out mm-hmm. there a little bit more now is that it's about finding that balance between fiber and sugar. And so mm-hmm. when it comes down to talking about it, I always use the cookie as an example, because your typical cookie on the market has almost no fiber. So you're looking at a 16 or up to 20 to one sugar to mm-hmm. fiber ratio, which is way out of whack. Whereas if you go to our cookie, because there's actually like no starch or sugar left in the Mm -hmm. flour itself, 
even though we're using a regular recipe, it's a three to one balance. And mm -hmm. so there's a little bit of a texture difference, but it's, I always say like, I'm not saying we have the healthiest product on the market, but mm -hmm. we have a well-balanced product and you're also fighting food waste at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's like a win-win on mm -hmm. that. And I mean, I've tried it multiple times. It, it tastes great. There's you, when you're eating, I, I always say you could give it to someone and tell them, here's a cookie. And they're like, wow, this is a great cookie. It's one of those things, especially when learning about anything where it's like green related or energy related. And I know um, many professors will always say this, like it has to taste good at the end of the day. Like no matter how good or how beneficial to the world something is, people still going to have to like it. Like it's a cost can go so far, but I mean, it's sustainable. I mean, the cookies were great. Everything was great. The story was good as well. But what, what you touched on was really funny is that like at the end of the day, it is about education on health. Like not everything, I think, especially with the internet is everything looks bad or good. It's like, okay, no sugar, no carbs or no fats, all meat. It's one of those things where everything is an extreme. But when you talk to most people, there, like you said, there's a balance. You can make healthier decisions or I would say just smarter decisions with, with what you're eating. I remember um, one of the big things growing up when I used to think I was into nutrition because I watched a few YouTube videos. I like, tell my grandparents, I'm like, oh, you know, like fruit's bad for you because there's sugar in it. And like all up here, like, no, okay. Like, I don't think so. But like, they just eat fruit all the time. I'm like, oh, you know, like you're eating all these calories. And the more you learn, it's like, have you, and I remember someone saying this to me because I thought like macronutrients, this is everything. And then someone's like, um, have you ever met someone who eats a lot of fruit and vegetables and like looks unhealthy to you? And I'm like, no. And they're like, yeah, have you ever tried like a thousand apples? And I'm like, oh, it's because it's a balance. And when you break it down, it's really simple life choices. And from that day, I'm like, I should probably see more fruits. That's why you're having a apples better than chocolate bar. Also because the fiber and some other science behind it. But yeah, you're so you're making your cookies, things are going well with anything related to food. Like how did production happen? Like how were you able to scale production, start making the cookies? Was, was that a challenge? Cause I know typically when you think of a startup, you think of like, okay, I'm going to do a tech startup. I guess that's the most common, almost no overhead. You can just ship unlimited. I mean, you luckily you have some operations background. Was that what helped you really getting it started? Or how did you get really into the manufacturing storage and shipping and all the logistics around it? Yeah. Um, so the first step is like, we started out of a little cafe, which was perfect for us to mm -hmm. begin with. It, it allowed us to do some product education and it allows us to get feedback because we're just in one cafe. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went and got us into Nada, which is a zero waste grocery store. We figured people mm -hmm. who don't like packaging would also love to fight food waste because um, mm -hmm. they're environmentally savvy. And so as soon as we got in there, the cafe was like, oh, you can't produce for others out of our cafe. And so then we actually decided okay, let's be, let's be, make a conscious decision of mm -hmm. where do we want to go so that we're not going to keep just having to bounce into a new space constantly. Mm -hmm. um, so we started looking at commissary kitchens, which is really hot right mm -hmm. now. Um, ghost kitchens, commissary, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. But we got into one and that allowed us to scale because the one cognizant decision we made was we could work off hours and get more time and more space because nobody wants to work at night. And we were just like, we're like, you know what? Who cares? Like, maybe the timing sucks, but this is the business we want to do. And we mm -hmm. found a baker who agreed with that. And so we were able to take over more and more space because nobody wanted to be there at night. And we had like a facility that you'd be paying tens of thousands for and almost mm -hmm. had it to ourselves some nights of the week. Now, 
there's a lot of a lot more businesses and it's become a lot busier and we may have to move on soon but that was a conscious decision and we i guess built a real dedicated team who even in the interview process we said hey one day a week we may need you to come and and get get your hands on and and bake some cookies and they were like almost just as excited to do that um if not more they're like oh really i get to pay, get paid to do that i was like yeah no like so, yeah, it's all around the team and making sure you have the right infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And why cookies? Like, I mean, like, like you said, you could probably put in a lot of things. What made you choose cookies as the product or yeah. versus anything else? Yeah. So cookies were our first product. We're now branched out into quite a few different mm-hmm. things. We're into mixes now as our yeah. core pr- product. But cookies is actually it related back to a story when I was training uh, diabetic clients. There's two older gentlemen. Um, at different times and the story just hit me at the right time, but they said, they're like, I don't know why my diabetic numbers like aren't getting better. Like the sugars I'm eating better and this, and both times the wives who came on their interviews with them were like, yeah, but he can't lay off the cookies. And I was like, interesting. (laughs) So if I made a healthier cookie for these people who can't lay off the cookies, um, that's fun, but it's also we could actually pack them. We didn't need to use a different blend of flour. So cookies oh. is a dense product. And so we could actually utilize just our flour um, and make it solely the upcycled barley flour, as opposed to like our banana bread, our waffles. You mm-hmm. all, they all need a blend because you need a bit of rise. You need to make it a little fluffier. Cookies mm-hmm. are meant to be dense. So that was another reason behind cookies. That's so interesting. You- I always like asking those questions because it always seems like an arbitrary, like arbitrary question. There's always like so much behind it. Like, like you said, you want to use all your product cookies are what works. And I think also, which is a nice story is like, everyone's had a cookie. Like everyone knows what a cookie tastes is most people probably baked a cookie. It's such a universal thing that everyone can be like, Oh, I understand what a cookie is. I know how they should taste. I know what to expect. And it's, I mean, it's a cute story. It's also a circle. I don't know if that's time. It's like anything circular economy. I just like, as you know by my title, with my alliterations, I like funny puns and wordplay. Um, so, like you say, you started off with cookies and you started branching out. How did the new product lines get de- developed or thought out? Because I know it can always be challenging when trying to grow a business, learning to grow, you know, focus on a product, growing the product versus saying, okay, let's do different products, but then spreading yourself too thin. How was the decision to transition to other, like you said, mixes, other products? How did that come about? Yeah, so mixes were always going to be a longer term focus. Mm-hmm. And what accelerated that was COVID-19. Um, basically, before COVID-19, baking wasn't as big of a thing. People wanted people, like more people were in the market. They were at work all the time and mm-hmm. they would go pick up a baked good. They wouldn't be making it at home. And then mm-hmm. during COVID, baking really took off. People started talking about baking again. And it's basically taking a product and moving it earlier in the supply chain for us. So it's actually easier for us to produce mixes than it is to do the full cookie mm-hmm. itself. Um, we had we knew we had to do cookies to begin with because you need to get it in pe- people's mouths. They need to taste it. They need to know mm-hmm. it's going to taste good before they want to commit to baking it themselves. Um, but now, yeah, the, and people know that it tastes good. People are willing to try it themselves. Um, and this means that there's a lot more potential. And then the other thing that we look at when we create new products is what are consumers asking for? So mm-hmm. a lot of 
we what we did last summer and we'll eventually get back to is bread we started making bread we have a few recipes for bread um because that's just kind of the quintessential thing when you think of baking is you go back to bread or bready type things um Mm -hmm. so yeah so we started playing with those we've done beer pretzels a few times um but you have to think of the market where are you going to sell it what's the shelf life type of thing um so because that was the biggest learning is taste Mm -hmm. is number one but then the next biggest thing you have to start building is convenience so both for you and for the customer, mm-hmm. something that you can logistically manage to keep up with and the customer is going to want to buy on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And speaking of like shelf life, like how how does shelf life affect, affect things pretty much? Because I'm assuming the shelf life can't be that long and you have to, being a smaller business, how do, how's the logistics work? Are you primarily just in you know, the Vancouver area or have you looked at expanding or have you expanded to other places as well, internationally or nationally? Um, so we are expanding nationally with the, with the mixes here because they are shelf stable. Mm-hmm. Um, the cookies themselves mm-hmm. have a much shorter shelf life. We've been asked to package them or do things to them to make them mm-hmm. more shelf stable. But to me, as soon as you start putting preservatives in, your body's starting to absorb those mm-hmm. preservatives. So there's things that are meant to have mm-hmm. shelf life and there's things that are not meant to have shelf life. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm of the mindset that I don't want to put preservatives in that are gonna then go in my body and they're mm-hmm. going to, basically what preservatives are meant to do is they're meant to preserve things and they bo- they block channels. So they block mm-hmm. your, your gut and your ability to absorb mm-hmm. things and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so that's why the mixes are kind of gonna distribute and we do wanna eventually have like a hyper-local approach. There's breweries in cities across Canada. Mm-hmm. So we'd love to open up these micro facilities mm-hmm. across Canada and have cookies and baked goods available there, but also the mixes available to people mm-hmm. in more rural locations and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So the, the bait, you know, the mixes are, are so interesting because I know, especially for me during COVID, it's really been much more time cooking. Cause I think after a while you get really just bored of ordering out your food. You want to get creative on your own self. Um, so for the mix, like how, so like you said, the mixes are really, really just be taking the up, up the supply chain almost putting the, the powders, mixes together and shipping it off. What was it mostly so similar thing? Do you start with the cookies and then similar thing? And then how did you get the word out? Was it through the Kickstarter campaign primarily to push it? Or how did people realize like, oh, that cookie company now has, I can make my own cookies. Like how did you transition into making people aware of the, where, where they can buy now the uh, ingredients, to make it themselves? Yeah. So slow process. Um, we took about a year to do it. We started, uh, we started doing mixes in a jar to let, to familiarize people with it. Um, and then put it out at certain times of year, like Christmas time when you're gifting things. So you give this cool cookie mix with a story. Um, but that's the one biggest thing with this new packaging is the story is told right on it and it it tells itself, they give it to a friend. And now the friend immediately when looking at it, and learn the story they also have the brand name they go online and now there's a bunch of video and marketing material and all that good stuff mm-hmm. um so they get to really familiarize themselves with it but um yeah the kickstarter is meant to launch to to just build some momentum off of mm-hmm. it uh we were cognizant the, the new packaging was ready in february but we ended up deciding to hold it off till april mm-hmm. um to launch it on Earth Day because we feel like Earth Day is going to be an important day for us every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and we want to like that's going to be one of our days to own i find mm-hmm. some brands who try and own every holiday and i'm just like yeah. one or two is plenty for us mm-hmm. um but that one's going to be a big one we'll probably do big things every year for earth day um mm-hmm. it's near and dear to us and yeah i, I think we're going to let consumers really start taking over um deciding mm-hmm. where they want us to take this i like I think that's very circular in nature mm-hmm. too, is you don't decide everything, but let your consumers decide things mm-hmm. um, and decide what mix they want next. Uh, we've got some interesting ideas in the works. So I've reached out to some uh, people in more diverse groups because we'd like to see mm-hmm. uh, a little bit more diversity involved in our company. So somebody might have mm-hmm. a mix um, that's that's an item that you, we, we don't know about, but there's cultures that have moved into Canada that this, this is a product from back home um, mm-hmm. that they might miss. And so we're going to be launching some of that hopefully in 2022. They're starting Ooh. to create some recipes. Mm-hmm. So there's some local business people. Cause I think like that's, we have such an interesting product that can gain a lot mm-hmm. of attention for other small business owners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we have some exciting projects that we're working on in that regard too. That, that's so cool. I mean, it's so, so exciting. I, I think like you're saying being so, familiar with your customers. I mean, you starting out talking to most of your customers, especially when it was, like you said, a school project, connecting, really iterating on it. It's so nice to hear, but also allows, like you said, because it's so story driven, being able to speak to the people, understand that people just really helps develop the brand, but also develop the story of that community feeling. And especially because, especially with the upcycling, using local breweries, it's like the whole, everything ties together so nicely. Now, I'm assuming when you started off, you were getting some, pro- like, you know, some products, working with a few breweries. Did it ever become a challenge trying to get more of it? Because I mean, it's you need the you need. I mean, is there enough breweries to easily supply you with it all? Like, is there such a abundance of it, or has it come to a point where you're like, oh shoot, we need the beer industry to grow now, so we get more of this? Or has that not really been a challenge? No, that is not going to be a challenge. And I don't know if it ever will be. So beer, okay. so barley byproduct from beer, spent grain itself is 3% of global byproduct, just that one byproduct. That's how oh, that's wow. we are going with it. And that's one of the reasons why we kind of went with this is that yeah. the supply is just out there. I don't think they're ever going to have grounds to charge. Um, we want them to be part of the marketing anyways. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, we don't want to charge them. There's some investors that, that want us to do that. Um, but I think this is more of a like, let's work together to grow this as fast as possible and to really fight back on food waste. But yeah, no, even in Vancouver here, we, we've reached out, we have six or seven just because mm-hmm. there are issues where like a brewery's tank will go down and they won't be producing the day we need spent grain. And so we have to go to mm-hmm. something else. Um, but yeah, even if we launch a facility, like I think max we're going to be taking for five, from five to 10 breweries with our first facility. Um, and yeah, we're barely going to be making a dent because I think there's over a hundred here. So that is so interesting. Cause I, in my head, I'm like, okay, you know, is not, I'm like, is this scalable on the like, side? Is like, how many breweries are there? I also wasn't too familiar before going to Vancouver that like microbreweries and breweries are very common, especially girl, like where my house was right on, uh, near near Hastings and a lot of the other smaller breweries there. I was like, oh, it's everywhere. It's not like a, oh, is there a brewery? It's like every gosh darn street has one. Now, I remember we spoke about this before, but you get the bar. There's a process you have to do with it. You can't just take the from one and I'm assuming throw into the other. 
how does that process work? And is there a, like almost a bottleneck on that, like processing the grains to get them cookie ready? Yeah. So that's the, that's the bottleneck we're currently going to be experiencing um, with retailers really taking this on. The nice thing is that during COVID we built up a supply because we knew that Mm -hmm. the the dry goods were going to take and make a huge dent. Mm -hmm. And so we're, hoping we have enough to last us until February with ongoing production as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's why we're like, that's a big reason for the Kickstarter too, is that we just realized with retailers, our first trade show two months after launching our cookie mix was recognized um, in the top 10 in grocery. We also uh, submitted it for a competition of Vancouver magazines, like mm-hmm. taste made in Vancouver. And it's, mm-hmm and a finalist for an award there and it's nominated for another one. So it's been in market for a month and it's gotten, it's up for three awards. So we're, we were basically like, okay, we gotta, we gotta get moving on this facility. Cause once we have a facility ourselves, that mm-hmm. bottleneck will get removed and then it'll be back to how can you sell enough <laughs> to justify the facility? Yeah. So, no, but I mean, it's back and forth. Right. So, it's always funny. There's, it's always, it's not chicken and an egg problem. But it's always like, okay, we need, we need to sell more. Then, so okay, I'm selling more now. I need more facility. But then, you always buy a facility, obviously bigger than what you need. So it's always, it's a never-ending battle. I mean, you work in operations, you know, it's like this never-ending battle to figure out the perfect little, you know, supply and demand curve. So it's always optimal. There's always going to be, you know, changes and. Especially when you grow, it's like, okay, we got this facility, and you always hear a story of like, we bought this facility. The plan is, you know, for five years, and then. When things take off, take off, you're like, okay, we just finished the facility and now we need another one. And it's always a good problem to have, but it's always wild how things can grow so quick. And especially with this new mix, like you're saying, are you winning all those awards in such a short, relatively short period of time, how long it's been on the market? So one interesting thing, especially for a lot of food, like you were saying, is with COVID, how did COVID affect the business? Was it, I'm assuming you said it sped up the flour, the package goods a little bit more overall how did it really affect the business was it i mean it was a shock to everyone covid but like did it dramatically change what you were focusing on or was it still pretty much just the timeline but only a little bit sped up um it had a tremendous effect on our business so we were two weeks away from closing our first funding round like Mm -hmm. first official funding round um that didn't go through because our target market basically shut down so our target market Mm -hmm. was actually um to sell the frozen cookie dough balls to institutional buyers um so that they could just bake them on site as needed because then we could produce a lot more volume not have to deal with baking not have to deal with the shelf life as much um and we had started to line up some of these these institutional buyers that were really interested in it and then covid shut down all these institutions um the other thing is is that retailers were kind of slammed so people when they're in a like a state of anxiety aren't really trying new things or they're going to comfortable things things they're familiar with interesting Mm -hmm. so we basically when covid hit we kind of took a month to like just sit back evaluate things um and really just take it in whereas a lot of people went into crisis mode we just Mm -hmm. cognizantly said okay we're not going in a crisis mode. We're just going to take a step back. We're going to watch what happens with the market. We're going to go to these online meetings that like, that was the nice part about the first three months of COVID is these big organizations sharing all their data. 
And so we got into as many of these meetings as we could. And that's where we learned that like baking mixes was taking off and, and all this type of stuff. And so we're just like, okay, this, we can repivot. We cognizantly decided amongst ourselves. So we lost a co-founder cause they were exhausted and they're like, I'm not mm. doing this anymore. Um, but two of us, me and Clinton were like, no, we're carrying this thing forward. We're going to, we applied for SIBA loans. We got them. Um, and then we, yeah, we kept going and we basically defined that it's going to be baking mixes. We put a lot mm -hmm. of energy and effort into the packaging to make sure we had it just right. Mm -hmm. um, and so far, so good. It seems like it's being rewarded um, mm -hmm. in terms of decision-making, but it was a very tough year. Um, I guess the next year will tell how, how much it pays off, but uh, mm -hmm. I think the summer we're going to be busy in, in a different way. We're going to be really defining our ops, rejigging our business plan completely mm -hmm. um, because it's going to be like the core focus will now be mm -hmm. the mixes. Cookies are going to be more of a marketing play. Um, oh, interesting. The mm -hmm. flower is more of like the value proposition differentiation. Mm -hmm. So we'll probably see stockouts on the flower. The cookie mixes and the waffle mix will hopefully not experience stockout issues. Mm -hmm. Um and then the cookies will just be available for like marketing purposes, making sure people get it in their mouths, um, taste it for the first time. We mm -hmm. do a unique promo and we might offer this to more to retailers as well as like mm -hmm. the first weeks you carry it, uh, do a free cookie with purchase promo because um, you get a free like almost $4 cookie with your $12. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty good deal. Yeah. And that's such an interesting story because like just like you said, the idea of, okay, Let's calm down. Let's figure out what's going on. Because I think with, I mean, with COVID, no one could have predicted. I think everyone thought, oh, next week, once this wave hits, the second wave will be done too. Oh, month we're done. This is, this is going to be a nuisance, a little blip, but I, I mean, no one expected it taking this long, especially in Canada. Well, in Ontario, it's still going on apparently. I mean, we're still in lockdown, but that's besides the point. So it's really interesting how you were able to adapt and kind of focus still on, I think the biggest thing about this story is that the value really never changed. It wasn't that, oh, we have to change up the whole business in regards to what we're trying to offer, what we're trying to really do. It's really, I think, the almost the exact same value, but just a different, like you said, different form of consuming it or even using it. Um, and especially now, I ex think with the mixes, and I think banking in general just became more popular. I do see the future probably being very good for that, especially with the longer shelf life, easier to ship, easier to handle as well. Um, it's very exciting times. Now, what I always found interesting in regards to food is that how do you, well, I mean, this might be an interesting question, but within like the food industry, is it highly competitive between organizations and people or is it much more of a like, sharing of information? Because when I think of tech, tech, it can some industries in tech, it's like everyone talks about it because everyone's trying to change the industry, change the world. Sometimes in other organizations, it's everything's a secret, like, this is proprietary. Don't talk. Have you found that it's, especially during COVID these times, that was quite helpful or has it now that it's so popular been like a lot more of a competitive industry than initially before when it was just more for the trying to make a difference? Yeah. Um, I'll touch on one thing first, though, because mm -hmm. you said, as you were talking, I thought of something interesting, mm -hmm. um, the way you defined it. And it's truly in an entrepreneurial journey. Don't fall in love with your product because we had to pivot the product, but the overall mm -hmm. business stayed the same. And that just came to mind when you're, when you're talking. So that is an important lesson when it comes to collaboration within the food industry. Um, 
I think it's like any industry, it's a mixed bag. Uh, <laughs> when you have something that's super unique, like we do, you do get people reaching out to collab. Um, but it's like, it's all on, for me, it's like, all right, can we come to a win-win uh, yeah. in this collab? And so some people come in and they're just like, we have all these ideas and this is what we want to do with you. And I'm like, do we get a say in this? No. Okay, then I don't want to do it. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, even if you're just giving me like a couple of wins, then that's mm-hmm. fine because I know we're a small brand. But mm-hmm. we've, we've said no to some some fairly big partnerships because it just feels like we're getting used. Yeah. Um, as opposed to when it's like, I think when you're at a similar stage and you're working with companies who have similar products, I'll even say like, we just, we just started a giveaway today because mm-hmm. we're in the Van Mag finalists. There's nine finalists, but four of us are actually working out of the same kitchen. So I approached <laughs> them all and said, hey, why don't we do a giveaway with our four products? Um, and just to celebrate the fact mm-hmm. that four of us like we work here and we'll just like talk about how it's like we may be in comp- competition but we feel mm-hmm. more like we collaborate so yeah um yeah there's a there's been a fair bit of collaboration i'm my spidey senses i guess that's one thing i'm really good at is my spidey senses tingle when i feel like somebody's trying to take advantage and mm-hmm. i'm pretty open with how much i talk but i know when to shut up <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think what's really funny what you touched on is that especially around like competition working together is always good, but people trying to use your things, new idea to be like, Hey, you're a small business. I can help you out, but I want control over everything. I always, I always found interesting. I think for a lot of early startups or, or early businesses, like at first, the first collaboration, it's like really cool. Cause like, okay, someone believes in us, you know, I'm excited to help out. But then there comes a time where your time is valuable as well. Like you can't be trying to work on this or do this. And I know for a lot of organizations, even I think more within food, but a lot of times people think they're helping. They're like, Oh, Hey, I have a great idea. Why don't you make this product? And you, and especially if it's a bigger client or retailer, you're like, you don't want to say no directly because in future relationships, but at the same time, you can't be making, well, we're making cupcakes for this restaurant. We're making this for that. How have you found it? Cause I know, I mean, the product's so unique is how have you been managing that relationship between saying yes to, no, not saying yes to everything, but still keeping an open mind with that win-win? Like to you, what is a win-win? Is it just financial? Is it like marketing? Like how, how do you, le- I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, they'd be wondering, how do you leverage between a win-win versus kind of getting the short end of the stick in regards to a big organization kind of taking everything, controlling everything? How have you found that challenge over the time? Yeah, so I think every every entrepreneur kind of has a vision for their business Mm -hmm. and just don't make that decision in the moment. So take, take some time, always ask for time to think about it. Um, unless it's like, it truly is like you practically put this in place and somebody came with you and has the same idea and it's like, okay, great. Yeah. I was was thinking the same thing. Let's do it. Um, but if it's not in your kind of short-term roadmap, then it's starting to think, okay, when can I put it in my road roadmap? So there's a lot of things that entrepreneurs don't do well is set timelines and be like, don't, don't change your immediate timelines for no good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to push things down the road a little bit and see mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that is a great idea. Why don't we schedule a meeting for a month from now? And then you can mm-hmm. give me a little bit more about it or something like this. If in a month's time they've like they moved on to the next big thing, next thing or whatever, mm-hmm. then they're just like they were basically just 
putting together something and hoping you would work on it. Um, mm-hmm. Versus if they're really passionate about it, usually they'll come back the next meeting with more of an idea around mm-hmm. that idea and it'll be more built out and you'll have a better idea. And then you can assess, okay, this truly might be a collaboration mm-hmm. as opposed to this is going to be me doing all the work. But I've had to, I'm a highly energetic person and can yeah. lead, lead things. And so I've made a more conscious effort in the last like eight months to let other people lead things and be okay with things not being done to the standard that I'm used to. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, I think, another good thing about this product is like with our cookies, we had to constantly be like, okay, be careful about like the shelf life and be careful about this. This I can literally, when people want to give stuff away or be it do a giveaway, yeah. I'm like, here you go. Take it, take a cookie mix, go, go give it away and do some event and just make mm-hmm. sure to tag us. Cause that doesn't cost us anything really mm-hmm. in the long run. And it just builds more awareness. So, yeah, I, I what was funny is every time I've talked to someone either on the podcast or in life around like any consumer CPG good or any consumer good, it's always so difficult to ensure that like, especially with a cookie that I made this beautiful cookie by the time the end user gets it, I have no control over what it is. It could have been smashed, could have been the heat. Like, and that is obviously always so stressful. I think that is like one of the unique benefits people don't realize of, especially with, with your good now is that from when you create it to when it's in the consumer's hands using it, it's most likely going to be exactly the same. There's very many less steps where, oh, that, you know, retailer store in the wrong area, store in the wrong thing. It was in the wrong section. I know when I talked to another organization, like their good had to be in the refrigerator or else melt wouldn't taste good. No retailer knew that. So every time a consumer would buy it, they'd be like, oh, this isn't that good. And they'd have to be, no, it's supposed to be in the fridge, but you can't tell a consumer that they're wrong. It's that it's the, no one wants to just be like, well, I'm buying the good. How am I supposed to know? So they have so much effort into, hey, let's work with everyone to ensure. And I think having the flowers, like you said, so much easier to control, but also you can have that nice brand story and, and do everything with it. But um, I mean, your journey has been super exciting. Even since when I was at UBC, it was, like you said, quite small, cool idea. And everyone still talks about it with so much like emphasis and pride for a cookie business. And especially your your story being so unique and going from, and I think it's one of the unique things, especially with entrepreneurship, is that even though you never, I'm assuming, never planned to become a co- cookie and baking mogul, you, you, but at the end of the day, it's like every, all your experiences from, you know, having operations, because like any business, like especially within baking, it's like, it's so logistics focused. It's such a business because there's, compared to, I, I always think like, People always think tech's like, oh, there's so many people you have to manage. When you're making something, there is suppliers, distributors, all these other people. And it can get so complex, especially if you're not used to it. But also, I bet even if you you had examples having that sports background, being a flight attendant, I mean, speaking to people. And especially when you were doing your, I know I always just, it's farmer's markets and everything else. Just being that, because you embody the brand, being like, oh, I like this person. Mark's really nice. Let me try, you know, his cookie has the same energy. Like all those little things make a, such a big difference. But um, you know, thank you so much for your time. If people want to follow the story, get involved, where can they find all the information? Yeah, you can find it at sustainable.com. You can go to or follow us on Instagram's probably where we're most active mm-hmm. at sustainable. It's a nice part about having a unique name is we own the domain across the board. So sustainable mm-hmm. on Facebook, sustainable on Instagram. Uh, I think we own the Twitter, but we aren't active yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then LinkedIn as well. But yeah, the website has the most up-to-date information and you can even buy it there.